Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Did you know that a government-incentivized hospital protocol has led to the deaths of untold numbers of unsuspecting people? The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons noted, We now see government-dictated medical care at its worst in our history, since the federal government mandated these ineffective and dangerous treatments, and then created financial incentives for hospitals and doctors to use only those approved and paid-for approaches. The book the Protocol That Kills exposes the lethal regimen adopted by hospitals to maximize profits at the expense of patients' lives. This exhaustive expose provides a first-hand account of the protocol in action as it was invoked on an otherwise strong and healthy 52-year-old Rob Skiba, who was diagnosed with a viral infection by the admitting hospital. Within 40 days, this valiant Army veteran who had sworn to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, had fallen at the hands of a government-incentivized domestic enemy. This over 400-page true crime story uncovers every aspect of this lethal protocol in action, despite the protests of Rob Skiba and his wife. It includes disheartening text messages from Rob who was locked away from his wife because she was forbidden to enter the hospital in the name of the protocol. Lawfully recorded detailed conversations his wife had with doctors, therapists, nurses, and hospital staff. Numerous pages extracted from the over 5,000 page hospital record that exposed the protocol that led to his tragic death. The testimony of a medical expert who provided his detailed analysis of the case invaluable and timely insights of a legal counsel who provides the story behind the story by providing crucial details and evidence along with over 100 citations from clinical studies, medical journals, federal regulations, and relevant books and articles that prove Rob did not die of natural causes but due to the perpetrator's insistence that he follow the mandated and inhumane protocol that kills. As Richard Bartlett, MD says, this book shares a wealth of critical insights that will greatly aid in preventing future needless losses of life. The purpose of this book is to sound an alarm of a clear and present danger, as this lethal protocol is still being used against patients in hospitals all across America, and to provide you with essential insights that could help save your life or the life of someone you love. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Get a copy today. 
at theprotocolthatkills.com. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. This week, we're joined by the authors of the explosive expose, a true crime documentary, the book, The Protocol That Kills. Sheila Skiba, the widow of Rob Skiba, someone that I have looked up to for years, and also her friends and co-authors, Roberta and Alan Stalby. And so we are just honored and privileged to host them and get the word out about their book, about what happened to Rob during the COVID pandemic and how he was treated, how Sheila was treated by the hospital staff because of this incentivized, liability-protected protocol that kills. And... Wow, this one is an explosive episode. So you're definitely going to want to check out the website, theprotocolthatkills.com, and get the book. Um, If money is tight, you can get the PDF version for about half the price of the paper version. And you can do what, what I did and use your phone to play it through an app, and it'll read it to you while you're, you know, doing chores around the house or whatever. So without further ado, let's bring on Sheila, Roberta, and Alan. So uh, welcome, Sheila Skiba and Roberta and Alan. Is it Stalvi? Yes, Stalvi, like the uh, letter V in a horse stall. There you go. And of course, uh, I'm Pete, and uh, my brother Luke is with us from Louisiana. And we are just honored and and privileged to be with you guys. Um, I want to welcome you and also uh, and honor Rob. But uh, why don't you guys just tell a little bit about yourselves? I know you're you're kind of neighbors, right, in the same town. Yep. There's kind of a funny story uh, about how we did meet. Uh, their daughter just happened to live next door to us, and she was watching Rob's videos and and also um, her parents. And so she saw this guy that looked like Rob Skiba and. She just kind of watched him, and then the next day she saw him again, and she just got the courage to say, hey, are you Rob Skiba? And he said, yes, and kind of looked like, why? And anyway, so long story short is she realized he lived right next door to her. And they just moved in. We had just moved in, and so they invited us for dinner, and we we uh, kind of grew a friendship. How cool oh, is that? So cool. That's amazing. And, and how long ago was that? Oh, dear. Mm. Uh, seven, eight, yeah. seven, or eight. I, I lose track of time. I don't know. A long time ago. How long have you been? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Was, uh, was Rob um, prolific online and, and doing his conferences and, and videos and oh, books yes. and everything back oh, then? Yeah, we've been watching him since like 2014 maybe or thereabouts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, super cool. I thought I was going to meet him one day, but not like this. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then end up like this and, you know. Well, there's something about destiny. For sure. Well, 
you know, if if uh, for any of our listeners who, who kind of have a, a feel for maybe the topics that we like to cover, um, when they hear this, they might go, well, how is um, a book called The Protocol That Kills talking about what happened to Rob, talking about the COVID pandemic and how the medical system operates and how they treated him? How does that connect to the days of Noah? And really, and it doesn't take too many jumps. I mean, you don't even have to do the six degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon to get there because, you know, Rob was um, very prolific talking about the Nephilim and Genesis 6. And that's a lot of what our show centers on. And so, you know, I discovered him years ago talking about those things and uh, challenging conventional wisdom on a lot of things. And uh, so, yeah, I just want to just give honor to to Rob and his ministry and everything that he has meant to a lot of people. And it was his interview with uh, Tim Benz that especially stuck out as Tim uh, talked about how God used him in a unique way to deal with uh, ancient Canaanite altars. And again, this is the, the, the Nephilim gods that... Um, the false gods that were being worshipped and children being sacrificed to them. And lo and behold, uh, God directs Tim to Jekyll Island, Georgia, which is where the Federal Reserve System was born. And Rockefeller built his house right on top of a Canaanite altar. And just the level of evil being off the charts. And we'll get into it later, but how how that same man, Rockefeller, uh, tied into the medical system we have today that led to what happened to Rob. So mm -hmm. good connection. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't know if you guys want to just start with maybe kind of a summary of the book or, or, and then get into how, kind of how Rob got sick, wherever you guys want to start there. Okay, I'll just start with, um, for those that maybe don't know Rob, um, he was a 52 year old, very healthy man. He, uh, we traveled the world together. Uh, we did conferences, um, South Africa, Canada. Um, we had a very amazing journey of sharing truth and, and, you know, had a lot of friends and a lot of places and, um, really brought us a lot of joy to go and meet people in person. And, um, and so he, uh, like I said, very active. He worked out twice a week. He was very fit and, uh, ate very clean. And I want to read this thing. I didn't find this until after his death, but this is something that we found after he died. And this was his heart um, about this whole COVID thing when it started, because he was not a whistleblower. He was a, on top of the mountain screaming to everybody saying, wake up, you're losing your rights to why are the churches uh, shutting down? You know, he was very anti-mask, even though he did wear a shield to get his groceries. But, uh, you know, very, very uh, alarming to him that nobody was uh, raising a red flag. Everybody was just you know, doing what they were told. So this is what he, we found that he had written. It says, I am a healthy person with a God-given functioning immune system. I was created in the image and likeness of the creator who tells me that my body is meant to be a temple for the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Thus, I refuse to corrupt my temple body with potentially harmful substances, foreign genetic code, and things identified in scripture as unclean and an abomination. Neither you, the government, nor anyone else has the right to force, all caps, a medical procedure on me in violation of virtually every medical ethics standard, including the Nuremberg Code. 
And I wish I had had this when I went in, but I, I did not know that my local hospital had turned into a prison. I didn't know that. And uh, just to give you kind of the little um, summary of how it happened is he went to take on the world 2021. It was a conference. We normally always traveled together, but uh, he was a little bit concerned about quarantining and he, he wanted me to stay home. So I said, okay. So then he came back and um, this is the end of August and um, he's not sick at first, but then he starts coughing and it, the cough just keeps getting worse and it turns into an uncontrollable cough and he can't even take a sip of water. So we had all the medications. We, we called the American front, not American frontline aligned like telemed people. And so they had given us the budesonide, the albuterol, the ivermectin, all those things. And um, we were trying our best to get those down. But every time he'd take a sip of water, he would gag, you know, gag it back up. So mm -hmm. there's no way he could keep it down. So this went on for eight days. And of course, you know, I kept telling him we need to go somewhere because I, I don't know what to do. And at that point, we didn't know we needed oxygen. So um, the last thing, the last straw was um, I put the oximeter on his finger and it was down in the 50s and I freaked wow. out. So I called the American Frontline Aligned telemed people and they told me take him to the ER. Yeah. So I'm really disappointed that they told me to do that. And I've yet to call them to tell them, you know, because of their advice, my husband's dead now mm -hmm. because uh, all he needed was oxygen. Yeah. Right. And immediately his oxygen went up with supplemental oxygen. Um, the only question that they asked me when, when I brought him was, was he vaccinated, which at the, at the hospital, which was weird to me because since when do you go to the ER and they ask you if you're vaccinated? So, um, yeah. you know, hindsight, hindsight is always 2020, 20, but, uh, they stripped us apart. They escorted me out. I figured they were going to settle them in, maybe let me back in, but they would not let me in for 21 days. Yeah. And it was a nightmare, total nightmare. And that was a guideline, a CDC guideline that then hospitals took as law. Basically, this is, this is our policy, even though no one was forcing them to do that. They were Are just you speaking in of the separation of the, yeah. of the family members. Right. Yeah. Terrible. So, and, and as you mentioned about the oxygen, so they could have helped you get that. They could have helped get that prescribed yes. instead of going to the ER. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You. Um, and you go ahead. Luke. I, I, I actually worked as a firefighter. I've been one for 15 years. So we obviously respond to people and obviously someone that's in their fifties, that's, that's, you put them on oxygen immediately is, you know, right there in their home. Um, and we carry oxygen on our trucks. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the underlying cause of why that, why his oxygen was that low? That's, I don't know, maybe that I'm not that qualified to say, you know, um, but his COVID what? symptoms brought that down to 50% in the normal levels right. or what? Right. Above 90? I'm, I'm guessing it was yeah. pneumonia is what I'm thinking or a biological weapon. I don't really know where he got it. The bottom line is when you got him to the ER, you were separated from your husband and help. You'd think a hospital is where you're going to get better, but things got worse. Yes. My dad got a pacemaker there. I had been there numerous times. I had been, but I was able to be an advocate to my loved ones. This time I was not. In fact, these words ring in my ear every, every day is he, the last words he spoke to me were, I'm going to die in here if you can't be my advocate. And then they stripped us apart. And at that point, I wish I would have grabbed him and taken him out, but you know, 
you can't live, you can't live thinking like that. And like Roberta said, there's destiny. There's something greater. And I prayed through the whole 40 days is what he, he lived in there for 40 days. It's a miracle that he survived as when you look at the amount of drugs they gave him. But uh, I prayed to the father, you know, whatever will bring you the most glory. I'm okay with it. Never thinking he was going to die. Never. Even the day he died, I never thought I was going to lose him because he was so healthy. He was so young. Speaking of that isolation, um, so I, I was able to, uh, through listening to it, I man, I love listening to books. I get through them so much faster. It's what I did with yours, actually. I bought I bought the PDF of the Protocol That Kills, and um, there's an there's an app that I use, and I do the text to speech. Mm -hmm. speech and I'm able yeah. to listen to it. So after I finished yours and I messaged Alan and said, I, I finished, I'm ready to, you know, schedule you guys. Uh, I, I think I told him, I said, I'm going to try to go back through for a second time and listen to the audible of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s, uh, the real Anthony Fauci, because there's a lot of tie-ins to that. And one of the things that stuck out to me was how the CIA learned about how detrimental isolation is. Um, it's actually being socially isolated is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's, it's double the health risks of being obese. It's, and they know this stuff, you know, and even the, even the six foot rule, right. Mm -hmm. Which they justified by the droplets or whatever. Um, you know, one one person that Luke and I look up to, Dr. Laura Sanger, and you can check this out on like the Heart Math Institute. They figured out that the heart gives off like an electromagnetic connection to one another and it goes out about five feet. So isn't it interesting that the six feet was was just enough to keep us apart? Yeah, you notice but, they they didn't call it physical distancing. They called it social distancing, which doesn't make any sense from a physics perspective. You're not socially distant. You're physically distant, but they wanted you to feel socially mm -hmm. distant from people. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. So maybe, um, Alan and Roberta, could you kind of outline what is the protocol that kills? And of course we'll get into the details there. Well, <clears throat> it's, <laughs> It's as Sheila has actually gathered from another website, and we have this on our website, The Protocol That Kills. There's a link to it, something called The Script of Death. And it is a common script. And what's interesting about Rob's story, by the way, the way we wrote the book, is it's not meant to be just a story about one man. It's meant to be a universal story to represent the hundreds of thousands of Americans that died at the hands of the white coat assassins who strapped them down basically and did their thing on them with this protocol. But it's a common protocol. And if you go to our website, The Protocol That Kills, under the promo video are a number of links that are further validation of what we've talked about. One of them is to Vera, who is a Holocaust survivor, who runs parallels in her interview. I did an 11-minute snippet of her longer hour interview where she runs some parallels against what happened in the Holocaust, giving up their medical freedom and giving up their rights to the government and what's happening now. And then there's other links that including to the script, but the script of death is common. And there's also a link to hundreds of cases that are on another website where they're not as detailed as this one. This is 438 page docudrama, legal brief, expose book. 
But that website that we link to underneath our promo video is hundreds of cases documented with at least a little bit of a write-up on exactly what happened to the loved ones that died. But this common script includes, number one, isolation of the victim. Number two, denied alternative treatments. Hmm. Number three, denied informed consent. You say, I don't want this. They say, doesn't matter. We're going to give it to you. And they don't tell you what they're giving to you and why. Number three or number four is gaslighting by hospital staff, constantly telling the victim they're going to die, which is common. And you, you'll see this in our book. Then removal of communication devices, so you can't get to your cell phone, making it difficult to communicate. Dehumanization, being treated somewhat like an animal. And vaccination discrimination, you know, based on vaccine status. And another interesting point is you'll notice in the book, those who read it, is that in the hospital records, which we have in an appendix, a large number of the over 5,000 pages are there that are redacted, but with a lot of notes, they had on multiple pages in all caps, and bold, unvaccinated. Now, why would they do that? All throughout the record. It'd be like if they said all throughout your hospital record, red hair, red hair, red hair. You'd think, well, wait a minute. They've got something against people with red hair. Why are they putting this in there so often? And then rapid oxygen increase. And that's something else we mentioned in the book, which is that they put him on often 100% O2. And Luke is a former firefighter. You may realize that 100% O2 for any extended period of time is going to cause what's called oxygen toxicity and can cause severe lung damage. Refusal to communicate. Uh, The doctors and nurses refusing to communicate with family. Dehydration and starvation is another part of the script. And that's also mentioned in the book. Rob had not eaten for over a week because of the coughing. Uh, Maybe took a little nibble, but he really couldn't eat or drink for about a week. And then so he's already famished. He gets to the hospital. And for the five days before they finally forced him on a ventilator, they didn't also ensure that he had adequate food and water. If he didn't order food, they didn't care. If he did order it and wasn't able to eat it, they said, well, he's not eating. So the only thing on the menu was drugs and then more drugs on top of drugs. And then non-emergency ventilation. That's another thing that happened in this particular case. It's not emergency. It wasn't absolutely essential. His O2 levels were not that low. And and still they try everything they can to force you on a ventilator. And then once you're on the ventilator, which happened to Rob after five days, you're on a bullet train to the morgue. And it's a wonder he lasted 35 days after that because the average ventilated patient lasts about 14 days. Oh, boy. So that's give you an idea of what we mean by the protocol. And of course, it also includes the only approved antiviral for COVID, which is called remdesivir, which Rob refused. Sheila even said when she got to the emergency department, as they rushed her out, ushered her out the door with an armed guard, she said no remdesivir because they didn't ask about his family history. They just want to know, is he vaccinated? But she said he has kidney issues in his family. They run throughout his family. So please no remdesivir. He also told them, no remdesivir. What do they do? They give it to him at night when he's asleep, when he finally gets a chance to rest for a little bit. And when he finally finds out they're giving it to him, he says, no, I don't want it. They get upset with him. And as you read through the story, you find out that then they usher him out of the ER or out of the ICU, I'm sorry, where they first admitted him to punish him. And so it's just a bit of a mess uh, of what he went through. But it's all a combination of intimidation, harassment, isolation, forced medication, and eventual termination. Right. You'll find that incentivized medicine pollutes the whole system. Absolutely. It takes lives 
and they are looking for the profit, not the care of the patient. Yeah, another thing we learned about the protocol in with this is that we talked to some people along the way when Sheila uh, came over to let us know Rob was in the hospital. Unfortunately, he was already on the ventilator, but we did all we could to help salvage what we had and try and possibly get him to another hospital where they allow visitation. We had a, an intervention meeting with the doctors that Roberta and I attended, and you know we tried every way we could to appeal for Rob. But what one person said to us was, even if you fire the doctors, which you have the right to do, this one person who's an advocate said, you can fire the doctors, but you can't fire the protocol. So even if you fired every single doctor that was assigned to Rob and said, I don't want you on the case, I don't want you on the case, I don't want you on the case, they would bring in other doctors that golf with them, that go out and have dinner with them. They're all buddies and they're all following the protocol established by the hospital board, which is based on CDC, NIH, FDA and WHO protocols and suggestions Though they're not mandates, as you've said, Pete, they can't mandate anything, but their guidelines became mandates to the hospital because financially it benefited the hospital. Yeah, I want to know why did Trump's administration and then Biden's uh, force incentivize medicine? Why did they have to incentivize right. the, uh, what do you call the ventilator, the remdesivir? COVID diagnosis. They, they will give you money if you do it. Yes. And that was in the CARES Act? Yes. yes. Yeah, so, so here Rob was killed by his own tax paying dollars. And not only Rob, but 2.1 million 1. others. 1.2 million, we think. Some of you have given a statistic, possibly died. And, and that's the sad thing about this. A lot of people think that their relatives died of COVID. Of COVID. They went to the hospital, they got a positive diagnosis of COVID, and oh well, people die of COVID. Unfortunately, though, the vast majority of them died not of COVID, but of the protocol. And that's what we're trying to provide a warning in this book of a clear and present danger. It is the most exhaustive expose ever written on this deadly protocol. There are a lot of sob stories out there, and I'm not trying to discount them or discredit them or what am I trying to say to, uh, to minimize them, but they haven't gone to this level of detail. And I'm not saying they should have. This took a year and a half of our lives to put this book together in this level of detail. And yes, we could have written it in 100 pages to explain there's a deadly protocol. But with a 438 pages, with over 130 legal counsel statements, with over 100 citations to clinical studies, medical journals, uh, to federal regulations, we prove without a doubt for the reader who we invite to be a member of the court of the jury of the court of public opinion that Rob did not die of natural causes, but of this protocol. But he's not an isolated case. We wanted people to know that, and many people have read this, and it's a big eye opener is wait a minute, is that why my sister, my father, my brother, my mother died? Oh my goodness, I thought it was COVID. Oh, yeah. Tell them about the dental hygiene. Well, another quick story, and we're going on and on, is after uh, we were almost done with the book. Uh, we were probably a month away from publishing. I go for a dental appointment for dental cleaning. And my hygienist, who I'd never met, but had been at the practice a long time, but I just hadn't ever met her before. She She's just saying hi and trying to get to know me. And she asked me a question I'm not usually asked by a hygienist. She said, what are you working on? And I thought for a minute and I said, well, uh, I'm actually working on writing a story, uh, a true crime story of a murder. And she backed up a little bit and thought, well, that's interesting. And I said, and it happened in a hospital. And she backed up again and she looked at me and she said, what hospital? And when I told her the name of the hospital, which we've redacted, we've given them a pseudonym, COVID Coven Hospital of Plano, Texas, all throughout the book to protect the guilty. But she said, what hospital? I told her the real name of the hospital. And she said, oh my God. She said, when did this man die? 
And I said, October of 2021. She said, oh my God, that same hospital in that same ICU murdered my father that same month. Oh my goodness. Wow. And so she told us her story of her father who's Russian. And so therefore they let her in because they wouldn't let Sheila in, but they let her in for a small part of the day, just so she could translate for him for about 15 to 30 minutes a day. Sheila couldn't get in for 21 full days at all, but they let her in to help translate for a few minutes a day for her father. But some of the exact same things and some of the same doctors were on his case. He was just down the hall from Rob. They did the same things to him Mm -hmm. following the same script of death forced him on the same technology, which is in the book. I'm not going to get into it now, but they forced him on a technology that actually further damaged the lungs, which then led to the ventilation and led to his death. And we've since met her and she actually uh, couldn't stomach looking at the records, but she had gotten a printed copy from the hospital. And I asked her if I could look at it and she did. She let me look at it. And I went through page by page and there were so many similarities so sure. many similarities, like they, they didn't weigh him right. They weren't, they weren't feeding him. They were over oxygenating him. I mean, it's the same exact script. Yeah. They restrained him. They restrained him. Yeah. yeah. They Terrible. intimidated him. They told him he's going to die if he's not on a ventilator. Oh, and that's another thing I wanted to clear up is the reason we have so much content is because on day two, I got a call from Rob. I could see his uh, cell number on my phone and I said, oh, it's Rob. And so my mom and sister were with me and we answered it. And um, it wasn't Rob. It was a doctor and he was uh, yelling at me saying that uh, my husband needed to be put on a ventilator or he was going to die. And I said, no, his, he doesn't need to be put on a ventilator. His oxygen went from uh, 72 when he got there to 96. So why would you put him on a ventilator? And then he immediately started yelling at me again, saying, do you want your husband to die? I mean, he, it was so. And, and then of, he turned it on Rob and says, do you want to die? It's it's awful. And so because of that conversation, my mom and sister were mortified. Like, when does a doctor talk like that in front at the patient's bedside and to the spouse? And not to mention, I can't get in. And so uh, that's the moment I decided I was going to record every single phone call with the doctor, the nurses, the social worker, the chaplains. And and like I said, I was losing my, my mind because I couldn't get in. And I kept asking these people, show me it in writing. Show me it in writing. Where Where is this 21-day rule? Show me the right. law. I mean, yep. and nobody could do it. Yeah. And it's a, it's a godsend that he did uh, talk to you guys so disrespectfully. And because that was early on in, when he had Thank just... You. Yeah, that day was the day two. after his arrival, the next morning. Yeah. Not even for, 24 hours. Right. So for you to uh, just recoil from that and and go, I'm, I'm going to capture everything that I'm told. And, and I thought he was going to live through it. And, you know, if you've seen Rob's material, I thought he would expose it. You know, I was going to show right. him how, how terrible this was. And then yes. he could he could then turn it around it. and share it with the world because that's what he exactly. did. He was Let, on a cliff. Yeah. Let's go back to um, the incentives for a bit. So the CARES Act, I mean, do we know how did that come about? Who supported it? Who wrote it? Do we know anything about that? No, we don't. Wait, there's some of it in the book. Well, we know that it's it was put in place, of course, with the idea that we were trying, of course, you, the, the excuse would be we want to save lives. And so we're putting money aside. So every patient you put on a ventilator, you're going to get a bonus. Every patient you put on remdesivir, you're going to get a bonus. And if you do get them a, a death certificate that says COVID on it, you get a further boost. Yeah, but and- why would a doctor or a hospital need that kind of incentives if their whole goal is to save lives? 
Right. It almost makes it sound like if we didn't incentivize it, they wouldn't want to save lives. Yeah, like like they needed an extra push yes, to do their job. no sense at all. Well, that caused Absolutely. people to be forced on ventilators that didn't need to be. Although and there were hundreds and thousands of our American doctors and nurses that said, we will not take lives, we will step away, or they were fired, and they wouldn't uh, march to the protocol. So that is very telling as well. Well, Sheila was recently interviewed by Scott Shira who is from Minnesota? Or, no, yeah. Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And he has a Down syndrome daughter who was 18 years old, and her oxygen was in the low 90s. Now, normal is about 94 to 96, uh, which is your percentage of hemoglobin carrying oxygen in the blood. But he took her to the hospital because it got to the low 90s because she was not feeling too well. She really did not even need supplemental oxygen at that level. She could have been fine. But he did not know. So he thought, well, let's take her in to be careful because hospitals normally yeah. want to help you. Right. And he took her in and they also wanted to force her on a ventilator very quickly. And he said, no, she doesn't need to be on a ventilator. Well, he eventually got ushered out of the hospital and they actually basically would, would not allow him back in. They got a restraining order almost against him, just said, you can't come in here. So his other daughter, his older daughter, had to go in there and sit with her. But the sad thing about her is, then when he refused to put her on the ventilator, they found a cocktail of drugs they could use to euthanize her. And he is now suing the, the doctors and nurses individually. He knows he probably will not necessarily win the suit, but he's trying to make a point. And he's using his own money, probably three hundred to $500,000 of his own money, I'm guessing, to file a lawsuit to make the point that there is a murderous protocol out there. They had it in for her. They, they wanted to euthanize her. They put a DNR on her, do not resuscitate on her, when she did not need a DNR. Her family did not agree to the DNR, but the doctors put it on. And when they finally got her to a point, she arrested from all the drugs they gave her. The sister was standing by the bedside and started screaming at the nurses down the hall in the nurse's day saying, they said, we can't come in. There's a DNR and nobody would touch her and just let her die. But what's interesting is his daughter died on October 13th of 2021, same day as Rob, Rob Skiba. Mm-hmm. And when we met, Scott Shira and found his passion. He's a believer. He's a strong man of faith. And he believes there's a purpose in all this as we do too, that God has just allowed these things to happen. We believe there was a purpose in this to write this book, to get this story out. And if I may tell you that we've had some confirmations about this, you may know a little bit about Rob that he had a a suggested that at 444, 4.44 a.m. or p.m., if you happen to be awake, that you pray at 4.44. And what's interesting is we worked on this book for a full year and a half, had no idea how many pages it'd finally be. It ended up over 500 pages at one point. We tried to trim it down because we knew we had too much in it. And as we kept working on it and finally got to the last day, Sheila added a few more things. I said, are we done now finally? And she said, yeah, we're done. And when I looked at the PDF, there were 444 pages. He took a screenshot. I took a screenshot and I said, Sheila, there's a few pages that are blank generated by, you know, word that I've got to push out of a PDF because they don't need to be in the printed version. So it's 438. But it was literally 444 pages. And then it was published on April the 18th. And the end of the month, end of April, it's first month on Amazon. I looked at the end of the day at midnight and there were 444 copies. You can't make that happen. And you know, Rob is all about numbers. So he, he always further validation that. that we did the yeah. right thing and God providing giving confirmation. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So, so who who benefits? Uh, Q bono is what I have to ask. Like, you have these incentives for these different things. 
who was getting this money? Because I mean, hospitals are private institutions, right? So you have you have owners, but the doctors themselves aren't pocketing that. How does that work? Well, not necessarily. Uh, I agree with you there. The doctors probably don't get paid that directly. It's paid to the hospital as a bonus. However, the doctors want to continue to have admission privileges. They want to continue to be in the good graces of the medical board of the hospital. Therefore, if they put more and more people on this protocol, it's kind of like doctors that I've heard, surgeons, I've heard of some surgeons in certain cases had a quota from the hospital of how many open heart surgeries they had to do per year to keep their admission privileges. Now, what's that going to do? That's going to incentivize them to do more of them so that they can keep their admission privileges and keep bringing patients in. So we do believe that that incentivizes the doctors because they want to stay in the good graces of the hospital. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, you know, some of the things that, that came to mind as I'm, you know, reading your book and going again through um, Robert Kennedy's is just the conflict of interests that arises with that. You know, if you think back to, um, uh, I, I was working at, uh, <clears throat> at a warehouse, uh, shipping, receiving job about 15 years ago. And I remember for the first time then hearing about Sarbanes-Oxley, which was the, the, um, uh, the legislation that was put forth after, you know, the Enron scandal, right? So this was to provide transparency and I remember that coming up because I would handle, you know, uh, bills of lading and purchase order information. And I remember first learning there, hey, you can't, the purchaser can't be the same person that receives the item or whatever. So they put these things in place. And then uh, the Dodd-Frank bill uh, that came about to provide supposedly more regulation after the financial collapse. So it's like, how is it that the government can have an incentive with a clear conflict of interest? I mean, you can't sell, you know, an organ or a baby for money, and yet you're going to provide these certain levels of care at the exclusion of others. Well, I, I, I will say our ultimate dream and desire is to see Nuremberg too. Because what they did was experiment on people against their will. They tied them down. I mean, it's it's horrendous what they did, and um, and in saying that, uh, gosh, I just lost my thought. Uh, what was it? Oh, I, I know what it was. I wanted to. Uh, the information that I want is exactly what you're hitting on. Is I want to know how much that hospital made from unvaccinated uh, patients, because I feel like they targeted the unvaccinated so that when this whole thing played played through, people would be in such fear that they'd run and get the vaccine. I mean, that's exactly what I think happened. And so uh, I don't know exactly who got paid or how they got paid, but I know that uh, th we have it listed. It's in D2 in the book, but it has all the different incentives that they got. And we even knew at the end when we almost had a, we had a hospital that would take Rob, but uh, the, um, the floor supervisor said, oh, we knew that you were trying to move them early on. So they, they knew we were trying to get him moved to a place that would actually cooperate with us. And they, they didn't want him leaving because they, they knew that he was a, you know, cash cow, a cash cow and going to bring him in a lot of money. It's so frustrating. And you said Nuremberg. So obviously that's tied to the Nazis, right? So and then you have individuals at the top you know, the top generals, Hitler himself, whatever, you know, the final solution, you might have had some good people 
um, moral people, but when they're intimidated from the people from that have the power and the authority, and you're being told this is what you need to do, eventually you start to give in. And I almost feel like the hospitals were kind of in that boat. So even though these guidelines that turned into protocols or mandates, but it was the intimidation that the media provided. I mean, they were shaming people. You talk about gaslighting. Um, and then even uh, celebrities and stuff shaming you, you know, if you're unvaccinated oh, or, or, you know what, you get in a car accident and you're unvaccinated, <laughs> you could, you could sit on a stretcher. It's madness. Absolute madness. Well, yeah, doctors would say in the ER, you deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. That doctor yeah, would. would say you deserve to be sick. You didn't take your vax. Yeah. So, um, Real quick, uh, Sheila. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um, um, an experiment, I think, in the 50s or 60s by, um, I guess it was Milgram, where they did, um, and they didn't actually electrocute people, but they told people that they were electrocuting someone in the next room. Mm -hmm. And as they, you know, they could could hear the screams, they were actors, but uh, when they would do it, and two thirds of them because of the authority of the person asking them to do it, two thirds of them gave the full 450 volts. They were told. Well, doctors in general have egos. I mean, doctors in general, they think they're no, no, yeah. no, at all. God, God complex. And most yeah. of them don't. I mean, even the doctors that I spoke to more, more ashamed to tell me they were atheists. I mean, they didn't believe in the things that I was, you know, believing for, but I will say along the line of finding out of who got paid, there is a little Avenue that I'm going to pray and I would encourage you to pray with me for the right person to take this because uh, at the end of this whole uh, book writing um, experience and looking at 5,000 pages uh, in December of 2022, um, my son and I decided to go back and get a new record because nowhere in the record was Rob's signature. We're like, there Mm -hmm. has to be something something with with the signature and there was nothing. So we went up there and, Roberta kept telling me, go back, go back, because they kept telling me, no, they kept telling, telling me they gave me everything. But there, there was a few documents. I said, just search the word consent. So she did. And I was looking over her shoulder and I could see a little icon of a piece of paper. I said, I need that printed and I need that printed and I, I need that printed. So she printed me three documents. And um, I know your audience can't see this, but you can see they're all the same signature. It's not mine. It's not Rob's. And it, we didn't know what it said. And my, my son was like, we're going to get this forensically looked at because that's that's not right. So, but we decided, Jeremiah, my son, he said, look, it says a witness, a witness, and it has her name. He said, let's just go up there and ask for her. So we did. We just nonchalantly went up there and said, hey, is she working here today? And they said, yes. And so anyway, we went up there and she said, yeah, she signed it. And that there were stacks of paper and sometimes she was made to sign it. And I said, well, you know, my husband was a stickler for details. He would have never signed his name to anything unless he read every single line. So Mm -hmm. that's fraud. And not to mention, they put spouse, they put that he did it, then they put on one of them that the spouse did it. And it also says, if you are not the one who's signing this, put your name, your address, your phone number, which they did not do. So there's evidence right there that shows you this scam. And I'm sure they did this to a lot of people because they they had to get paid. They had to get paid. So they had to do it. And they did it on the 7th of September. He got admitted on the 3rd. So if you look at the timeline, I have call logs, too, on my phone. So there's a lot of evidence there that shows you they were up to no good. They had to get somebody to sign that 
or they wouldn't have gotten paid. Yeah, this is premeditated, premeditated and premeditated murder. Absolutely. Um, that brings me to your medical power of attorney, Sheila. And I, But before I get to that, I do want to circle back to um, the other side of the incentive, and that is the liability protection. So was that also part of the CARES or, or um, I know the there, there was some legis the PREP Act, and there was something special in Texas specifically. Yeah, Can Texas you guys talk passed, to some of that? Yeah. Yeah. Texas passed a bill signed into law by our governor. Senate Bill 6, the Pandemic Liability Protection Act, but it's protecting the doctors, the hospitals, the first responders, the clinics, anybody involved with any care of any patient for a pandemic. And it's very explicitly worded that they have to do something absolutely egregious. They pretty much have to bring a nine millimeter in there and shoot you in the bed for you to be able to charge them with malpractice. So the moment they say COVID on any part of your records, no attorney will touch the case because they know they cannot win it. You cannot file any type of case. Matter of fact, Sheila actually spoke with an attorney about the financial fraud where on that form, the lady that signed it wrote verbal. And yeah, her that was the word. And her con right. I, I looked at that and I said, Sheila, I'm looking at this and this doesn't look like a signature. It looks like the word verbal in, in script. And she said, well, maybe it is. Well, when she finally spoke with that lady, she says, yeah, I wrote verbal on there because I got verbal approval. Well, from who? It wasn't me. Well, 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 it must have been your husband. I don't know. And she's, well, how did you speak with him? And he would have never had you agree. He had never agreed to this unless you read every single bit of this to him. And these are long. Uh, it's a consent for treatment form, mm -hmm. basically. And that consent it's form signing is signing your life away. And he would have never signed right. it. But anyway, she, she, they were implying that, that, that he had signed all this and, and he never had. So it, it's just been a mess from the very beginning, the way they've treated Rob and the way they hid things, the way they implied that he had consented to these treatments that he hadn't consented to, uh, the way they forced him to follow this protocol. You could tell every step of the way, as you read through this book, you'll see how egregious it is. And by the way, for those who question, why did Sheila record these conversations? Is that legal? In the state of Texas, it is legal. Uh, but what we're saying about, and it is legal, it's a one-party state. If you're a party to a conversation, you can record it and you don't need to notify the other party. But the Senate Bill 6, that Pandemic Liability Act, I was saying she spoke with another attorney about the financial fraud, which the hospital had perpetrated. They got paid for something that they didn't have the authority to get paid for. And so therefore, maybe you have a civil case against them. Well, he said, I'm sorry, but you have to realize something, that that act, the Pandemic Liability Protection Act in the state of Texas is so broad in its application that we'd have people fall in a hospital, a slip and fall accident. And they said, we're sorry, but that act also protects the hospital from any liability. He said, so even though there was financial fraud, in your opinion, and they signed verbal on the forms and you can go to a court and ask a judge to agree that they should have never been paid. He said, they're going to say, yeah, but we really have protection under the Pandemic Liability Protection Act. He said it is considered that broad, though it wasn't direct patient care. It's involved with this particular patient. So I'm yeah. not even going to touch that. It's a blank check. And what did what was there nationally then um, besides Texas that gave liability protection? Well, the PREP Act does the same thing. And, okay. and it, it provides liability for doctors involved with pandemics and the clinics and the hospitals. As you said, they feel like they have a blank check. They feel like they can do what they want without any repercussions. If they And here's the thing that's so insidious about this. Even the medical boards, if you filed a complaint with the medical board 
and said, this doctor did things against my husband's will. He did not want these drugs. He said he did not want to be it's, intubated. It's even in the record, 17 times that he said, no, he even had a ban, right. do not intubate. I think he went down punching, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I think, and they did. They tied him down. And they, they restrained they, him. Restraints. It's, it's just terrible. So even if you did go to the medical board or anybody to complain, they'd say, well, you have to understand, ma'am, they follow the standard of care. Yes. And this is what's so bad about it. I mean, I, and, you know, Luke, you understand that too, is that, that, that they have set aside this insidious, quote, standard of care that is murderous. That's why we titled it The Protocol That Kills. It is a protocol that's been incentivized, encouraged, and guidelines put in place by the CDC and the FDA and NIH and WHO, as I said earlier, that the hospitals gladly follow to their benefit because they're profiting off of the death of these patients. And so therefore it makes it sense to them as well. We're following the standard of care. And that's why a lot of these doctors will turn a blind eye and say, I'm sorry the patient died, but people just die of COVID. I did everything I could. And matter of fact, that's another reason in this book, we have legal counsel statements, over 130 of them, because if you simply read the dialogue that Sheila recorded, which we put in there from the transcriptions we did over hundred hours of dialogue, in many cases, and I'm a former Air Force medic, and I read this dialogue and I say to myself, that sounds kind of reasonable. I, I think they are doing the best they can. They sound like they care. But then when the legal counsel steps in, which is a, is a unique feature of this book and says, let me tell you what's really going on behind the scenes, mm -hmm. the story behind the story, you begin to say, oh my God, I didn't know this drug could be that deadly. I didn't realize this could cause difficulty breathing and shortness of breath, and they're making it worse for him. I didn't know this was a contraindicated therapy. And neither did Sheila at the time. But the legal counsel steps in in every single day of his hospitalization and every day that we talk about what happened to him and, and provide you that story behind the story so you'll understand how insidious this is. Because on its face, it may look reasonable. And that's why we're providing this level of detail and this level of warning to the unsuspecting, because had they not read this level of detail, they might also, if it was just a memoir with all the sob story in it and the doctors were not nice to me, they would have said, yeah, but they did the best they could do. But they're not, they did their best, I think, to follow the protocol. Well, this is a story that of the Nazi doctors. They also said during the Nuremberg Following trial orders. Yeah. that they followed the standard protocol. They were still That's hung. Right. And, and they, they were, were still, still hung. hung in the streets because they didn't show humanity. They didn't have a conscience. Do no harm. You're not supposed to do more harm. Right. And just refusing the the treatments that were that were studied, they were they they totally blow it off, and they say it's oh yeah, uh, what was the word? Um, anecdotal. Yeah, Sheila right. pleaded for for him to have budesonide. They said no, he doesn't and need. It. Eventually, they eventually gave eventually they gave him late. a minuscule amount. Yeah. But the thing is, they That's were right. they were nebulizing a drug that was so detrimental to his health. It was for uh, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, we did have a private autopsy as well. And let me tell you, his lungs were shredded. He had, they didn't yeah. even look human. I mean, it's, it's just terrible. That's from the over-oxygenation. Uh, they they right. had absolutely obliterated his ability to survive. I think probably a week before he expired, his lungs were unsurvivable. And that's what the medical examiner said, who we paid for the private autopsy for. She said, these lungs that I saw didn't even look human. They were totally unsurvivable. So even if had Rob not coded that day, <laughs> He was in an unsurvivable state by then because they had just obliterated his lungs capacity to right. survive. Yeah. At that point, there was no way to there was no there was no um, exit strategy to get him off the vent. But no. this is this is a uh, part and parcel. This is their playbook. Yes. I mean, you go back to the 80s when they pressured Reagan, uh, the vaccine manufacturers to to pass um 
the act that protected them against liability because they were losing money case after case from vaccine injuries. Right. So this is their playbook is is to stack the deck. And um, and of course, we know the emergency authorization uh, was totally fraudulent because the only way that you can get something like remdesivir, something like um, these untested vaccines pushed on people is to say there cannot be a viable option otherwise. And we know, you know, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, quercetin, zinc, these things were working. Um, and and Fauci, Fauci purposely uh, suppressed those things. They created, a, they created fraudulent studies you know, two of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, the Lancet, British Medical Journal, they had to retract uh, the study they did because they were giving lethal doses of hydroxychloroquine when they knew better. I mean, these things have gone on. This is, this is their playbook. It is. Um, and they do scenario planning, too. They war game this stuff. There's evidence that that this was pushed forward. Bill Gates was involved with it. Um but I want to speak real quick to, um, you know, Luke, you mentioned kind of the the shaming and all of the stuff that was involved. Um, there's a laundry list and I and a, of alphabet uh, organizations. And I just want to read this to people to get a sense of how much this protocol and what they were pushing. Um, they, they had all of these uh, organizations and people on their side. Uh, in lockstep to to push the protocol that kills the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, NIAID, which Fauci was ahead of, Unitaid, uh, American Medical Association, American Pharmacists Association, world governments, the WHO, Bill Gates, pharmacies. You couldn't get prescriptions uh, that you wanted filled for ivermectin and others, doctors and nurses. And again, when I'm saying all these, I'm not saying every person at all of these organizations is evil. But what I'm saying is there are people that run these organizations that call the shots that are incentivized and pressured to fall in line. Okay, so that doesn't mean there aren't good doctors and nurses and good people at these organizations. Insurance companies that would deny certain care, big pharma like Merck and Pfizer, Politicians, HHS, the DOD, DARPA, CIA, the Pentagon, medical journals around the world and their media, mainstream media, of course, and social media. You know, the censorship that went on was Orwellian to the extreme. And then another term that in Robert Kennedy's book, they call the medical PIs or principal investigators. Okay, these these were the boots on the ground. These were the the, the army to basically uh, grease the skids for everything that they wanted to push and everything they wanted to suppress. And these are the lobbyists and researchers uh, at universities, uh, medical board members, promoter of pharma interests, uh, clinical trial manipulators, media talking heads, medical journal influencers, public health officials, uh, basically Big Pharma's mouthpiece army. Um, And they were there to control the narrative, to ensure passage 
of favorable outcomes. And it's essentially, you could coin it as the medical industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, this is what we were up against. This, this is something that they built over decades uh, to be able to create this system that did to Rob and many others what they did. And this system still survives today. So we have to rise up. We're, Rob always said there's more of us than of them. So if the grassroots people will bind together, then we have a chance to survive. been listening to the days of noah podcast thanks again for tuning in this week we hope you've enjoyed part one of a two-part series on the book that sheila and alan and roberta wrote the protocol that kills please remember to share this episode with family and friends give it a positive review a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform it really does help to grow the channel If you'd like to support us further, please click the support link at the bottom of the description and choose a support level as low as 99 cents per month. All of that helps us continue our work and helps get these episodes out to more people. Thanks for your support. God bless. Tune in again next week for part two. Take care. Bye-bye.